and one thing I want to do to start us off is read a, so this is an interesting book. It's called 131 Christians, 131 Christians, Everyone Should Know. Um, you know, often our Christianity is seen in a vacuum, right? Um, how, like, you know, you think about church history, and it sort of only goes f- as far back as like, well, those good old Billy Graham crusades, and, and that's fine, but look, you know, like there's been a lot of happening even prior to like Billy Graham ever lived, right? And like as like thousands of years and lots of brothers and sisters that, though imperfect, we can look at and, and be encouraged by. Um, one of them is actually a lady um, who lived in North Africa um, in the third century. And this young lady, um, young mom, actually, is named Perpetua. And I'd like to read just, it, just a small little chapter here. It's a, it's a helpful book. It's actually, if you, if you were to buy this book, um, and J.I. Packard wrote the Ford, so you know it's good. But if, if you buy this book, you could put it near the loo. You guys say loo still, right? <laughs> because you can sit there and you can read it while you're on the toilet. And it's like, this, this is how quick it would... Yeah, this is pro- that's probably too much information, isn't it? But, but you can, you don't have to worry like, oh, I'm never going to have time to read all this. But you just, see, you see how short it is? This is just the, this is just, you're like, wow. This is just, this is just perpetual, and I'm going to read this to you now. And, you, you know, you could, you could bang out some church history while you're doing your business. So, <laughs> welcome. And you're welcome for that tip. So, uh, perpetua, this is, I'm going to read this to you now. It says, We have a little idea what brought, we have little idea what brought Perpetua to faith in Christ, or how long she had been a Christian, or how she lived her Christian life. Thanks to her diary and that of another prisoner, we have some idea of her last days, an ordeal that so impressed the famous Augustine that he preached four sermons about her death. Perpetua was a Christian noblewoman who, at the turn of the third century, lived with her husband, her son, and her slave, Felicitas, in Carthage. That's, that's in North Africa. At the time, North Africa was the center of a vibrant Christian community. It is no surprise, then, that the, imp- that the emperor uh, Septunius Savinus determined to cripple Christianity. He believed it undermined Roman patriotism. He focused his attention on North Africa. Among the first to be arrested were five five new Christians taking classes to prepare for baptism, one of whom was Perpetua. Her father immediately came to her in prison. He was a pagan, and he saw an easy way for Perpetua to save herself. He entreated her simply to deny that she was a Christian. Father, do you see this vase here? She replied. Could it be called by any other name than what it is? No, he replied. Well, neither can I be called anything other than what I am, a Christian. And the next days, Perpetua was moved to a better part of the prison and allowed to breastfeed her child. With her hearing approaching, her father visited again, this time pleading more passionately. 
Have pity on my gray head. Have pity on me, your father. If, if I deserve to be called your father, if I have favored you above all your brothers, if I have raised you to reach the prime of your life, he threw himself down before her and kissed her hands. Do not abandon me to the reproach of men. Think of your brothers. Think of your mother. Think of your aunt. Think of your child. Who will not be able to live once you are gone? Give up your pride. Perpetua was touched, but remained unshaken. She tried to comfort her father. It will all happen in the prisoner's dock as God wills. For you may be sure that we are not left to ourselves, but are all in his power. But he walked out of the prison dejected. The day of the hearing arrived. Perpetua and her friends were marched before the governor, Hilarius. Perpetua's friends were questioned first, and each in turn admitted to being a Christian. And each in turn refused to make a sacrifice, an act of emperor worship. Then the governor turned to question Perpetua. At that moment, her father carrying Perpetua's son in his arms, burst into the room. He grabbed Perpetua and pleaded, perform the sacrifice, have pity on your baby. Hilarious probably wishing to avoid the unpleasantness of executing a mother who still suckled a child, added, have pity on your father's gray head, have pity on your infant son. Offer the sacrifice for the welfare of the emperor. Perpetua replied simply, I will not. Are you a Christian then? Asked the governor. Yes, I am, Perpetua replied. Her father interrupted again, begging her to sacrifice. And the governor had had enough. He ordered the soldiers to beat him into silence. He then condemned Perpetua and her friends to die in the arena. Perpetua, her friends, and her slave, Felicitas, who had subsequently been arrested, were dressed in belted tunics. When they entered the stadium, wild beasts and gladiators roamed the arena floor, and in the stands, crowds roared to see blood. They didn't have to wait long. Immediately, a wild heifer charged the group. Perpetua was tossed into the air and onto her back. She sat up, adjusted her tunic, and walked over to help Felicitas. Then a leopard was let loose, and it wasn't long before the tunics of the Christians were stained with blood. We didn't have that music to dramatize this reading, by the way. Welcome to WCOC. This was too deliberate for the impatient crowd, which began calling for death of the Christians. So Perpetua, Felicitas, and her friends were lined up and one by one were slain by the sword. Now that is a heavy story. But Perpetua knew that following Jesus has a cost. 
There is a cost to following Jesus. So much for this lady's, this young woman, who who knows what happened to her son, by the way. It's not a Hollywood movie where someone comes rushing in and they all go off into the sunset together, is it? So much for her personal comfort. So much for her wealth, her house, her family. But yet she has a trust, a steadfast trust in the Lord because she knew when she became a Christian what she was signing up for. It wasn't a life of ease. It wasn't a life of prosperity. It's a life of steadfast trust in the Lord, even if it meant going to the arena to die and potentially leave an infant son who would die. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the famous German theologian, as it were, said, when Christ calls a man, a person, he bids them come and die. Today, I want to look at a text where Jesus calls people, but he doesn't just say, hey, are you excited? Do you want to sort of nod your head and just sort of raise your hand, walk an aisle, pray a prayer? That's great. You're in. No, no, no. He actually has these people deliberate, think hard about what it means to follow Jesus. How far we've come today, where we just want people to tick a box, walk an aisle, and we say, you're in. It's all good. But is that what Jesus does? Well, let's take a look at our text. But before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for this account in Matthew. And that every bit, every syllable, every sentence comes as a result of your spirit breathing it out. And so we ask that through the power of the spirit which inspired this in the first place, that you would pierce our hearts. We might know what it means to follow you and that you would grant us the faith to do so. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we left off seeing Jesus' authority. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, the, the crowds were amazed because he taught them as one who has authority. And then we see right on the heels of that, Jesus comes down from the mountain and we see his authority in action. He not only talks the talk, he walks the walk as it were, right? He, he backs it up. He not only just has the authority in teaching, he actually cleanses a leper, heals a centurion's servant, and touches a woman who has a fever, and it's gone immediately. Now, if that happened, right, no doubt that would attract a crowd. Jesus heals three people. He's casting out demons. If that kind of stuff happened last week, there'd be more than people in this room today. There'd be, there'd be like people all the way past Subway now. Right? Because everyone would be like, wow, people were like healed instantly. Like, man, I'm, I'm going to that church. No doubt that would, that would attract a crowd. And, and it has. People are crowded around Peter's house as Jesus is casting out demons and healing people. And so what does Jesus do? Does Jesus sort of put his hands together like this and go, I've been waiting for this. Yeah, baby, we got a crowd. Oh boy, we got a crowd. We're going to fill out a big stadium. Woohoo! 
Now he looks at his disciples and he goes, hey boys, let's get out of here. <laughs> if you don't believe me, it's, it's actually, it's, it's in verse 18. Look, look at Matthew, you were just there. So look at, look at Matthew chapter 8, verse 18. It says that when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go to the other side. See that there? Jesus points to the other side of this lake. He calls the shots. He's the boss. He's in charge. And he says, we're going that way. Now, can I ask you a favor? Can I ask you a favor? Don't forget that Jesus says that. Don't forget that. Because in about, well, I don't know, 25, 30 minutes or so, it's going to make a whole lot more sense. Don't forget that Jesus gives the command to go to the other side of the lake. Because there's going to be a life lesson on discipleship that we'll see. So let's get back to our story, though. So as Jesus is, and his disciples are loading up this little fisher boat, fisherman boat, they're about to head to the other side. They're approached by a man who wants to jump in with them. And this guy, as he rocks up, he pays high regard to Jesus by addressing him as teacher. And he's not only respectful, he is super pumped, right? In his excitement, he says, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. What a tremendous statement of dedication and commitment. It seems like he's willing to follow Jesus no matter what the cost. That was before the Chris Tomlin song. Where you go, I'll go. Okay? Man, if you're the disciples, you're probably thinking, this is fantastic. What a godsend. We've been waiting for someone like this to show up. And this guy just shows up. And he's not just any dude. He's a scribe. He knows his Bible cover to cover. He hasn't missed one Sunday school. Man, just think of what we can do now. This is fantastic. Jesus, you know, but you know, he, and he's the boss, right? So you're sort of looking at him. What's he going to say? You know, he's going to say, yeah, this is great. Well, we don't really have room in the boat here for, all right, well, let's, let's get rid of one of them. We got fishermen. One of you, I mean, come on. One of you guys could probably stay on the shore and let's get the scribe in here this is good. This will be really helpful. I'm really excited. And Jesus, what does he do? Well, he starts talking about animals. Uh, foxes. Yeah, they've, look, they've got burrows, don't they? And um, birds, they've, uh, they, they, they need nests to, to rest in. Okay. <laughs> what are you saying, Jesus? Here's, uh, did you not hear what the scribe said? All right? But before you think that Jesus has lost his mind, he's a bit out there, look carefully. Jesus is, he cuts right to the heart here. He knows what this man is truly after. 
He, he cuts right to the heart. He's, he's not concerned about this boat trip to the other side. Jesus goes right for the jugular, as it were, and starts talking about the cost of discipleship. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man, referring to himself, has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus knows that this man's greatest value is personal comfort. Personal comfort. When you consider this little proverb about animals, Jesus is pointing to the basic comforts of life, which even wild animals have. And he's saying, look, I don't have that. In fact, tonight I'm going to be sleeping on a boat amidst a crazy storm. You see, while on this earth, Jesus was nomadic. And those who followed him would have to live on the road and with a degree of discomfort and uncertainty. Sure, this scribe might appear enthusiastic and ready to jump into the fray, but ultimately he doesn't know what he's saying. He, he hasn't thought through what's involved in following the Lord. Which is why Jesus asks him to deliberate, to really think hard about it. Really think hard about what you're saying and what it means to follow me. It's possible that this scribe was used to a little bit of wealth and ease. Scribes were respected people in their culture and, and they might have done quite well for themselves. And so he may not have thought through all the implications. I mean, to follow this teacher, to follow this rabbi, was actually going to cost him. Probably going to cost him some friends likely going to cost him his career. And Jesus knows that. He could read his mind. He knew it was fickle. He knew it was self-centered. He knew it was unstable. He knew what this guy would finally, at the end of the day, be hung up on. And that was his own personal comfort. Listen, friend. There is a price to pay when you follow in the footsteps of the Messiah. It would be a bald-faced lie if I told you, just believe in Jesus and all of your worries will go away. And you'll have nothing but health and wealth and happiness in this world. That is a lie. And people that say to you, say that kind of rubbish to you, just want your money, by the way. That is a lie. There is a price to pay when you follow the Lord. But this guy, this scribe, they, he never thought through that. He never thought through the basic principles of discipleship. Sure, he liked the idea of, of being around Jesus and, and witnessing the miracles and the excitement of it all. And man, it must have been exciting, right? but he couldn't wrap his mind around stuff like self-denial and sacrifice and ultimately suffering. And Jesus spares him the time and goes full bore, saying, I just want you to know one thing. You're not going to get personal comfort out of this. You know that, right? If that's what you're after, it's not, that's not what you're going to get. That's why Jesus would later tell his disciples in Matthew 10, 
I'm sending you out like sheep amidst wolves. Well, that doesn't sound very appealing. Sheep are pretty useless. They're like guinea pigs, right? They're, they can't really defend themselves very well. I have a guinea pig in my house. He eats, he sleeps, he poops, and that's about all he does. If, if any animal came to attack him, he would just not know what to do. So, so I'm, I'm sending you out like sheep amidst wolves. Well, that doesn't sound very appealing. Come on, Jesus. And brother goes on to say, brother will deliver brother over to death and father his child. You will be hated by all for my namesake. Still want to follow Jesus? Now the reality is, I read Perpetua to start us off and, and Jesus talks about in Matthew 10, this persecution that will happen. Most of us, probably most of us in this world, in this room right here, won't encounter the, this type of persecution at that level. But, but if you're honest, because I, I, you ever find that hard? You, you read these stories and you're like, wow, that's full on. But then it feels like a universe away, right? And you think, well, gee, I hope I do that. Well, guess what? You probably won't in Australia in the next hundred years. You might, that kind of stuff. They're probably not going to bring you down to the What's the big stadium? Suncorp, Suncorp, Suncorp's. No, that's Brisbane. Yeah, whatever. Anyway. And one of the big, st- Ross, what's the name of the big stadium for me? Yeah, that's it. You're probably not going to, we're probably not going to drag Ross into there and be, you know, have wild animals attack. It's likely not going to happen. Hopefully it doesn't. So we sort of read that and we go, oh, that's kind of cool. But, but let me ask you this. If you were honest, if you were honest enough with your friends and coworkers that you follow Jesus, if you disclose to them the things you really believe, the stuff the Bible really teaches about what sin is, what sexuality is, if you were really honest with them and you stood behind that in a loving way, it's only a matter of time until people dislike you. It's only a matter of time until people brand you as a bigot, show-off, know-it-all, unloving person. If Jesus copped it and you want to follow him, so will you. It has been granted to you not only to believe, but also to suffer for his sake, it says in Philippians. This scribe seems Cain, though. But he held on to personal comfort as his greatest treasure. And you know what the following verse says about this scribe? Nothing. You want to know why? He isn't around. He bailed in the space between verses 20 and 21. The Lord called his bluff and he's gone. And later when Matthew mentions scribes, they're often the ones opposed to Jesus, not following him. Count the cost, friend. Count the cost, my friend. Are you willing to follow Jesus if doing so infringes upon your comforts in this life? Are you still willing to do it if it costs you a friendship? Count the cost. I I was thinking... Would, 
let's pretend for a moment, you sitting there in this chair, if you weren't a Christian right now, would your life look any different than it does? Like, do you know what I mean by that? Like, let's just pretend for a second you're not a Christian. And it's easy to say, well, I wouldn't be here. Well, who would? I wouldn't. I'd be at Voca Beach surfing right now, having a coffee, laughing at you fools for going to this building. That'd be me. I'm a bit of a jerk. But if you weren't, if you weren't a Christian, here's what I'm getting at. Is, is there actually, per, is, is there an infringement on your personal comforts right now? You're like, well, not really. You see, do you see that difference? Like, there should be. I don't have a list for you, right? I don't have to say, well, it needs to be X, Y, and Z. But like, you're, there should be a degree of uncertainty and discomfort in your life right now if you're following Jesus. It may not be full on like what Perpetua experienced, but there should be some degree of it in your life if you're really following Jesus. But if you look, talk, smell, and act like the world and love all the things in the world, I just don't know if you're following Jesus. You might be, but it's, if it's, there should be, people should be able to look at your life and differentiate it. Particularly if you're, say in grade 8, 9, 10, or 11, or 12, look, most of your friends should see some sort of difference in your life. Hey, why aren't you going and doing all of these things that we're doing? Unless you are doing those things, and then there's no difference, and then are you really following Jesus? Again, there should be a degree of difference in your life. Now, I'd like to keep reading because if personal comfort was the deterrent for this scribe, this next would-be disciple is held back by personal possessions. Personal possessions. Look what I mean in verse 21. In verse 21, another of the disciples said to him, Lord, First, let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Oh, that's shocking. Is, that, is Jesus being insensitive here? I mean, at first glance, Jesus might seem harsh. Poor guy. Just lost his old man. He's, he's trying to organize the funeral, right? And, and then afterwards, he can join up with Jesus and, and the rest of the fellows. What's the problem? Context is king here. We've got to understand the context. Because in Hebrew culture, when a father died, the son received his inheritance. But not until then. That's why it's so shocking in the prodigal son story when he says, give me my inheritance now. You don't do that. You don't get your inheritance until your dad is gone. So in all likelihood, this guy's pop guy's dad is, is still alive. If that's true, what he's really asking is to wait until his father passes, which could be several years. Then, once that has occurred, he can snap up all the cash and assets and feeling quite comfortable and financially secure, he can have a go at following Jesus. But 
but not until then. He's willing to follow Jesus just as long as it doesn't affect his wallet. He's cool with following the Lord, but it's got to be on his own terms. I mean, look at the language. Look at, look at the words he uses in verse 21. It's like a millennial on steroids, right? He says, Lord, sorry, millennials. Lord, first, let me. Who's it all about? Him. It's all about him. If the last guy's problem was that he was too quick to put his hand up without considering the cost, this book has the opposite issue. He is too slow to put his hand up. And Jesus has to interrupt him and say, follow me now. Listen, friend, there are no firsts that we can put before the master. Jesus says, follow me, and nothing must come before that. Not money, not stuff, not holidays, not even your family. The kind of radical language Jesus uses here is really just an echo from what he's already said. Remember the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 24? No one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now stop for a second and ask yourself, what does your giving say about the lordship of Christ of following Jesus in your life? How does your giving point to where your true priorities are? Is Jesus more important to you than your stuff? I know, I, I, I know we say that, but is, is, does our bank account reflect that? If you're a parent in the room, uh, can I just address you for a moment? If you would teach and bring your children up as you should, how are you discipling them in this idea of self-sacrifice? Are you modeling to them that they need to have the same standards over worldly comfort and wealth that you have? How are you leading them and guiding them to give their lives in the service of Jesus Christ? How are you teaching them what Jesus is here? More is caught than taught, friend. Your kids are watching. I wonder how much more work of God would go on and ricochet throughout this church if Christian parents would disciple their children in this area. See, the cost of discipleship challenges challenges our personal comfort. It challenges our personal possessions. And lastly, it challenges our personal trust. Easy to follow Jesus when everything's lined up, isn't it? But when something happens in your life, be that mentally, psychologically, physically, whatever, it's easy to throw in the towel and say, well, I'm not following Jesus now. Because we've seen in these two incidents here, Jesus teaching on the cost of discipleship. These two guys come up after him and he, he gives a, a, a lesson. And finally, now, we're going to see a life lesson, a depiction on discipleship. So go with me to verse 23 of Matthew 8. Verse 23 
And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. Now, these are fishermen. This wouldn't be their first rodeo of a storm. So these guys, they're not all fishermen. Certainly Matthew's probably like, gee, I'm an accountant, I didn't sign up for this. Right? I can just stay on the shore and write. We're actually going to see Matthew called in just a few verses away from now. It's quite interesting. But so they're fishermen, so they, they know they're in trouble. Right? But I think it's easy for us, particularly when we can sit in a room that's protected by most of the elements and we can be around other Christians. And, and I think we can sit in judgment quite quickly on the disciples here. Come on, boys. You're with King Jesus. He's going to work this thing out. He's got this. And why do we do that? Why do we say those things? Well, because we know the end of the story, don't we? We know the end of the story. But the disciples don't. They've been following this guy for quite some time now. And sure, he, you know, people have been amazed and they've seen some miracles, but what, what's going to happen here? Let me ask you, when storms come into your life and rock your boat, as it were, when you find yourself in trouble, when your family is in disarray, when your future and dreams come crashing down, don't we sometimes respond like the disciples when we don't know the end of the story? Church, remember the deal I made with you? What were the words of Jesus? What did he say? He said, let's go to what? The other side. He didn't say, let's go out there and see if we can drown ourselves, right? That'd be cool. He's already told them where they're going. They have to trust his words. They have to trust in the words of Jesus. Jesus didn't say, hey, look, I've got an idea. I think if we got there, there's in all likelihood, I've, I've kind of, I've checked the weather. I, I've got, you know, an iPhone. I scrolled through it. It says it's supposed to be only about 20% chance of rain, but I think we should be okay. Now he says, let us go to the other side. And they have to trust in the words of the Messiah. They have to trust in the words of their master. Let us go to the other side even though it doesn't seem like they're going to get to the other side. So church, when the storms of life come, when the trials rock your boat, remember the words of Jesus. Remember the words of Jesus. Never leave you nor forsake you. You can trust him. He is the sovereign Lord over all creation. Look at verse 26 now. Look at verse 26. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O oh, you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? What sort of man is this? 
He's not just any man. He's the God-man. He's the Son of God. Now, perhaps someone in this room right now is weighing up in their mind what it would look like to follow the Son of God. See, following Jesus, you have to count the cost. I'm not saying, in fact, I would challenge you, as I've been trying to, that don't bake on a decision you made several years ago. Are you following the Messiah now? Don't bank on an emotional decision you made when you were at a camp and you signed your Bible and put the date in there. Are you following the Messiah now? If you're here and you're not a Christian, I hope you've seen that there's a vast difference of being attracted to Jesus like the scribe was or even considering following him like the would-be disciple and actually following him. Friend, today, God wants you to follow him. The Lord wants you to repent of your sins. He wants you to trust in Jesus Christ who lived a completely good life and died on the cross as a sacrifice, accepting the penalty that God put on him in the place of everyone who would ever turn from their sins and trust in him. Will you do that? Will you turn from your sins and trust in him now? That's how you can know forgiveness. That's how you can be saved. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You can be forgiven and saved, friend. Jesus is calling you. And Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses for his life for me and for the gospel will gain it. Jesus is calling you, friend. Will you follow him? Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would do the miraculous now. For the stubborn person that sat here for the last year hearing that call, would you quicken their heart, break them in their pride and sin, and draw them to yourself. Lord, for the rest of us that are going through trials and storms, help us never to forget that you will never leave us, you'll never forsake us, that you are trustworthy. Lord, this is a challenging message to give. I, too, personally struggle with my own comforts and possessions, and I struggle to trust you. Um, Lord, would you, I imagine in a room this size, that I'm not alone in that. Would you give us the grace this week to be able to deny our own pleasures when it means following you, deny our own possessions, and to trust you when storms smash against our boat? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to be up here afterwards. If you have not come to Jesus,